Welcome to the COSIN Podcast, bringing you timely insights and strategies to succeed in the ever-evolving world of school system technology. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Each month, you'll hear from consortium for school networking experts, visionary technology leaders, entrepreneurs, and practitioners who will discuss the topics most essential to every school and district technology leader. And now, enjoy today's episode. Breaking through mindset, remote collaborating and planning, a how-to. This special COSIN podcast episode delivered in partnership with AASA, the School Superintendents Association and Digital Promise, and produced by Mind Rocket Media Group. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. We're welcoming him in today, Sam Becker. She's Project Director for COSIN's K-12 Innovation. Dan Foreman, Associate Director of Professional Learning with Digital Promise and Verizon Innovative Learning Schools. And Diane Dirsch, Technical Project Director with Digital Promise, Verizon Innovative Learning Schools. Uh, I want to start, Dan, with you, if you don't mind. I'm going to dial into your past as a Marine that has served this country. We're talking about working and living in a time almost of war where we can't see the enemy in that manner. And it seems that almost, I, I can't think of an industry that is not leaning into education and thinking about the ways in which we can convene and collaborate through digital platforms. Can you talk a little bit about that from your perspective? I want to respect your history and what you've done as you are now working in to support these conversations so that we can do what we would hope would be a very productive job in collaborating and connecting people around the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, I've had a weird meandering path through education. Um, but yeah, so I joined the Marines out of high school, uh, trying to figure out a way out of southeastern Ohio um, and figuring out my path. And I ended up just getting into communications and radio communications and setting up large scale radio systems um, and ended up doing that as a part of First um, Marine Division for the Battle of Fallujah. So like organizing a large scale communication system um, from the top and being able to not be able to talk to anybody because you're talking a very remote virtual space. Um, and this is 2004, 2005 um, in a very austere condition. How do you you know, organize what that looks like. How do you get all of that information out to everybody? You know, and I got to be there and bear witness to how all of that occurs and be a part of that team. You know, you're talking tens of thousands of people that all have to be organized in a way to uh, be towards one single mission. And you, uh, I throw out a lot of military terms when I talk about it. Um, it's really kind of driven me into education in that sense. And I try to also work with other veterans to move into education because we have that logistical communications mindset and also like being mission driven. Um, part of what I saw and what's kind of moved me in this direction is when I, you see the machine and you see the way the war machine works of we can get tens of thousands of people across, you know, open waters to the desert, being able to have all of the supplies, get them ready to fight a mission, do all of that. And then I come back to my first classroom in, in Washington, D.C. In, in Northeast, where I didn't have enough books. I didn't have enough desks. I had a chalkboard that didn't work, surprisingly, because it was so old. And my first classroom is now um, shuttered. So it's like those that school is now left to rot. And that's really what's driven me in education is now to see that disparity laid bare, especially in this current situation, 
uh, this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time in a number of years as a possible situation we could be in and trying to drive us in that direction of having more uh, capacity for virtual learning, having more capacity uh, to level the playing field across uh, equity, because like right now it's the experience is not the same. Some students are going home to a very digital, virtual, professional learning environment with virtual teachers to help them, virtual tutors that are more challenge-based learning, project-based learning. Other students are going home with a packet of worksheets and a prayer, more or less. And, and, and for me, that's a choice. We have to choose to bake a better system. And now that that's laid bare, we have to start pushing this forward. How can we think differently about how we educate our children? How can we take the, some of those logistical mindsets from other missions that we have already done in the past and apply them to education to make sure that all of our students are being provided with the same level uh, of education across the board. And, and like, that's really just how I see it. Like I've got this weird pathway of how I've gotten to be where I am and being able to see things in this perspective. Well, and very valuable at this point in time. Diane, so, you know, I know you were, you were an educator and you, you worked your way up and then a technical, you know, a tech director from the, for a district in Wisconsin. I want to talk about, you know, sort of piggybacking off of, of Dan there. What do you think are the questions that we are either needing to ask one another from the classroom perspective or that we're not asking and we should be? In essence, take a breath, pause. What are the questions that these educators are going to have that could help to bridge this time? It seems like we're trying to collapse timelines um, and do so in a way that doesn't ignite the flame um, of panic from an education perspective and support those not only from the classroom, but from an organizing principle and then also the students. So how do you look at questions? What should we be asking and what should we or how should we, I guess, be approaching that conversation between teachers and tech directors? Right. There are so many things to consider, and I, the first consideration has to be our students. What are our learning targets? What are our goals here? Um, you know, we need continuity of learning, and what does a home life look like, as Dan talked about? Some kids have resources, some kids don't. But as we look at this through a system, I was a classroom teacher, director of technology, and chief technology information officer. Um, you know, I think about, well, what kind of support do we need to get our principals so they know and understand, um, you know, the resources available to them, how can they and how are they uh, integrating the strategic plan that the school district has, thinking about things like school improvement plans, data, all those types of things that principals need. Higher than that, what to cabinet members need in order to support those principals, cabinet members and superintendents, uh, all the way to the Board of Education, and you know what are the expectations there. So I talked about the different layers up, now I'm gonna talk about the different layers down. Because you've got the Board of Education who, and your community who have expectations, and a superintendent who is bringing that goal and mission forward and their job is to help coordinate uh, their cabinet. Now, when everyone is far away, when they're in remote places, how is this going to take place? Uh, you talked about this right away, about having to spin things up quickly. And so what does that look like? 
we know that school districts were working, um, you know, nonstop and leaders were working nonstop to build plans and structures and expectations and policy and communication to their families. There are so many things as well as the well-being of their teachers. They were doing all this before there were announcements out that spring break is going to take place early and now the kids may not come back for a very, very long time. So now we're at that point of how do we keep communications going so the superintendent can talk to their cabinet members who in turn provide support to teachers to get them the information that they need and the resources they need to get back down to the students. And so as we look at all these structures, communication is key. And by talking with this group today, um, you know, they're, they're the pros. They've put these things together. And for me, as a former cabinet member, uh, leader of a department, you know, these are all the things that I believe leaders are going to need to learn how to do these communications in this way in our new normal um, so that information can get down to students and back up again and keep flowing the way it needs to be flowing. So those are the questions. We need to take a look at, at all the stakeholders we have, figure out what their needs are, and then figure out how we're going to communicate so that we can provide those needs, needs back down the chain. Yeah, so not being siloed, siloed in that regard, that it's, we, we have to have sort of these, I can't think of a better example, it's almost like family meetings, right, with every stakeholder around the table. Sam, yeah. I know how passionate you are about engagement. I would imagine that one thing that we do have to be mindful of in education is to say, while we're doing this, while we are sort of running these mass units um, and, and trying to make sure that we're not losing, you know, the gains that students have made, et cetera, et cetera, we need to be also mindful of how we are going to, I would imagine, at some point in time, assess our progress. At what point do we need to make pivots? And it seems like that is such a small detail when we're dealing with so many, what feel like obviously larger implications for people in their personal lives and their families. But what I would hate to see is that education, if we look back on it, is then going to be given sort of a, you know, a stamp of disapproval because we didn't think ahead through this process. How do you, how do you conceptualize that part of it, the engagement as well as the evaluation along the way so that we hopefully are doing this in a mindful, thoughtful manner? Yeah, that's a great question. And I really think Diane said it best in terms of stakeholder voice inclusion. Um, it's really hard to do this right. Schools, universities, and the like were asked to pivot nearly overnight. Um, and there is so much course design and so much that actually goes into making a course, a meeting, a project go from face to face, on site to remote. And so I think the first thing to do is for everyone to cut each other and ourselves some slack. Um, there's a huge emotional component of all of this as people are feeling really anxious, um, not only about the pivot to online, but what it also means in terms of suddenly people being let into their entire houses, right? As now they have video turned on in a spot that's not their office, uh, for example. So there's really a, an emotional layer to all of this that we need to recognize. And in terms of engagement, it's not necessarily just supporting people on the work and productivity in learning levels, but also the emotional level. And so I would encourage um, education leaders, 
educators and others to think about um, spinning up communities. Uh, there are a number of tools that people are using. Um, Slack is one of them, um, just one of them, of course. But what kind of kinds of communities are needed to be created um, for people to feel um, emotionally resilient um, in this process? So for example, there are a lot of parents, um, much like myself, who are now working full-time from home while juggling small children. Um, so what does work look like in that world? Well, simply having communities of other parents who are going through the same thing is one way to kind of bolster emotional resilience. So as we're thinking about our formal communities in terms of uh, putting classes online, board meetings online, and things like that, what other kind of tangential communities are we creating to practice emotional resilience? Um, and then in terms of measuring success, um, agility is really important, Rod. So the ability to kind of flip quickly if something's not working or not resonating um, is really important. Uh, and so I think um, being able to poll your community, whether through survey or quick polling tools, to kind of hold quick focus groups and get a sense of how um, people are feeling or doing, those anecdotes are actually some of your best data at this point. Um, but then think about um, what you can do and what data is going to make sense to you um, to actually measure this. So is it um, how many meetings were held in Zoom or Adobe Connect or BlueJeans or, 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 or Cisco WebEx or whatever the solution is? Um, certainly that's one measurement. Um, how long did those sessions persist, right? If we're seeing people kind of jumping off after a three-second duration, that might be a cue that things might not be um, persisting. But um, I'm hearing stories from across social media, from educator friends about um, how what's actually happening is that students and others are staying in the virtual classes and the virtual meetings longer than in the face-to-face -face classes to ask questions, to chat with each other. Really? Um, there is something to be said for the virtual realm sort of allowing for longer, more persistent um, communications and conversations. As we know, the digital world is 24 seven. Uh, and so there's also gonna need to be talk about balance, right? Um, as screen time becomes everyone's time because that's how we're learning. Um, what, does, what does that now look like um, when, we're, and when we're also trying to make sure that people are still having those face-to-face uh, -face and non-technological experiences too? You're listening to the COSIN Podcast, produced in partnership with MindRocket Media Group. If you're a K-12 edtech leader, product or service provider, or a school or district leader looking for support with your communications, public relations, social media, and multimedia production efforts, visit MindRocketMediaGroup.com to learn how you can work together with the expert team at MindRocket to achieve your goals. You know, Dan, if, if we think about how to collaborate remotely, I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, bring up the role of the educator and PD because, you know, look, I think it's been, we've been sort of this natural progression that there are a generation of educators. There are those that, that fit in sort of every uh, generation that is now impacting our student where some like technology, some are a little bit more reticent. And yet now we're in a world where we all have to, you know, uh, for argument's sake, we all have to be sort of on the same page. Is there now, would you imagine a heightened, um, sensitivity to the role PD plays to make sure that these educators are supported at every intersection of this collaboration 
uh, it just seems to me that it could be something that we very easily miss just out of trying to get screen time with our students and these sorts of things. How do you think and conceptualize of PD now? Do we need to reconfigure how we're even thinking about it uh, in an effort to support these educators? Um, yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and I really think about it in terms of how are we preparing our teachers? What does preparation look like? Uh, how does it change? And we've always been talking about, well, this is what a good lesson is. This is how it works. And this is how you should do it. Um, and many times in PDs that I see, it is not practicing what we preach. It's not modeling what we preach. It's very much a top-down approach. Here is my presentation. Listen to my presentation. I'm pouring the water in to the empty vessel. But then teachers have to go back to their classrooms and figure that out. Now, we now see how we can do professional learning and professional development at a much larger scale, still be able to do that back and forth conversation and have them be a part of that conversation. And we have to ensure at all levels of teacher preparation programs, as well as ongoing teacher preparation in professional learning, that we are including the virtual component in. Because basically every teacher almost across the country has had to figure out and this is at every level K-12 to higher ed, suddenly we're virtual. I now have to turn everything on a dime and make it virtual. And for some places, they've been preparing for that inevitability and that possibility, and they've had that uh, in place to get teachers prepared for that. Other places, they haven't. And, and, and that's where we need to start shifting in that direction. It's also a matter of cost of what you can actually do. You can scale a virtual conference to thousands of people for the same cost, as opposed to how much you would have to do if I want to do thousands of people at an in-person uh, conference. I have to think about food, I have to think about everything in terms of what I am providing and shifting around in a venue that's big enough. Suddenly now I have to find another venue. But in the virtual space, I can just scale it up and it doesn't really take me any extra effort. It's all about now I can communicate out what I'm doing, I can talk about what's happening in my classrooms, I can talk about what's happening in my schools, and I can share that very readily and very quickly to provide it for everybody. And um, maybe that, you know, Dan, speaking to what Sam talked about, maybe that even also levels the playing field when it comes to participation from a PD perspective, right? If the four of us are in a, in a ballroom or a conference, you know, sort of setting, we may not want to participate because we're at the back of the room, but now we sort of have that equal footing in a digital landscape. I, you know, Diane, it makes me question, or going back to you from a questions perspective, as a, a director of technology at the district level, I would think that there are great stressors put on you representing <laughs> uh, that cohort in the types of things from a, a security and a safety. I mean, Sam brought up, you know, now we're going to be on video showing our homes and these different, different elements and trying to secure the data, the, the students, uh, that information. How do you think about that from specifically that role and the types of questions that now you have to address? Because I would think, going back to the very beginning of this discussion, superintendents, boards, they're gonna be looking at it from a, a protection, which we, we want them to. Uh, we want them to chalk the field for us so that we have a better understanding of you know everything from how we're gonna map our curriculum online together to communicating with students in their rooms, right? Their, their homes. Um, how do you think of that in that role? There are so many things to think about uh, when, when we do this. Uh, I have always said in the roles that I have had, I want to start small and be good. I do not want to open the fire hose up right away because a lot of people will drown. 
if you can start small, lay expectations out, make sure policies in place, do all these things, and then start opening other things up slowly, front-loading with expectation, how-tos, um, change management, uh, things that have to, you know, we're changing things, what are your fears? Um, you have to take small steps. And the way that this has come over us, like a wave, I think, has opened up a lot of fire hoses. And it may be difficult in some places to um, dial back. So I guess what I would say from a superintendent and principal level at this point, Board of Education, let's allow them to have experiences that we're expecting our students and teachers to have. That means allow them to be part of virtual conferences and talk with each other, maybe be part of breakout rooms so that they can experience what students could experience if we were to move this forward. And then talk about expectation, policy, um, laying those things out from all your stakeholder groups. What do parents need to know? What do teachers need to know? What do kids need to know? What do administrators need to know in order to, to support their teachers? Um, you know, we've got to have that in place. And then slowly open up the gates after that because it just gets real computer confusing real fast when teachers have, you know, this app they could use, that app they can use, they've got these expectations on them, they've got to manage, you know, their, their home life, working up or setting up a workstation. And you know, Diane, <laughs> I would imagine that there's potential to even consolidate the apps and that kind of a thing, right? We hear about all these districts that they have hundreds of apps that go unused and or paid for that maybe we're going to learn a lot from this from this and you talked also about communicating that learning and my hope would be that in a world of digital portfolios and ways in which to communicate from classroom to home what is going on that again that will help us to understand maybe what parents or caregivers might expect or what they might be looking for Sam I, I just a, very curious if I think about the industries where digital learning has been been around for quite a while uh, higher ed is right there, right in front of us. Uh, I used to be an adjunct professor for seven years teaching online courses. And I can tell you the adjustment from my seat was in how to assess, how to even think of assessment. What does participation look like when you are not in a physical environment? And I'm wondering, how should we think about assessments? Again, going back to this, are we doing what we think we were intending to do? And are we seeing the results that we're expecting across the spectrum of sort of what we might we might expect from students output. Um, should we be leaning into higher ed? Should we be bringing in higher ed professors and directors of technology at university levels with K-12 to be able to talk about, look, this is what we've seen. This is sort of what the curve looked like in the beginning and where we are now. Or am I, am I missing the boat on that? No, you're, you're on the boat. Um, I'm on the boat with you because um, just to get on my soapbox, you know, for years I've been saying learning is learning. Um, regardless of what the sector is. And we're not going to be successful if we remain insular and start just looking at this as a sector by sector problem. Um, the museum sector, I consider that to be learn, you know, all about learning. So there's lots that we can learn from all different industries uh, right now. So the ability to just bring people together and have discussions like this and to share best practices is really important and in the absence of best practices because this is uncharted territory 
we have to be prepared to invent our own, which means it's gonna take educator and faculty agency, trying different things in terms of assessment, and then sharing stories. Storytelling is an important component to say, hey, this actually worked well for my dance performance or poetry class or whatever it is. Um, because now we're seeing, um, especially at the university level, uh, faculty have to pivot very face-to-face -face courses online, like a organic chemistry, right? And do that in very creative and unique ways. And I really think it's gonna be those sort of early creative adopters who are comfortable sharing their experiences, their failures, and telling their stories loudly who are gonna make an impact. Because sometimes we're afraid to try new things um, if it's been, if something's been unprecedented. Uh, so right now, for example, there is a 23,000 person Facebook group called Pandemic Pedagogy. Um, it is, there are higher ed in it, there's higher ed in it, there's K-12 in it. It's just people who are wanting to gain a better understanding and share failures and best practices around adjusting to that remote lifestyle. Um, and so I think these national and international conversations are going to be more important than ever before. And so we need to be ready with the digital platforms to make those conversations not only as easy as possible to have, but as easy as possible to broadcast out there so people don't feel isolated in their own practices and that level of anxiety we were talking about before because we really are all in it together. So as we think about alternative modes of, uh, of assessment, this can and should be applied to whenever this pandemic hopefully is over, right? Um, I think that, um, like Dan mentioned, this is illuminating major di digital inequity issues, and it's also illuminating major digital fluency unevenness. And digital fluency, I think, is now more important than ever. So um, what Diane said about making sure that educators, school leaders, and others are actually participating in and driving things like virtual conferences and virtual meetings to gain that sense of comfort uh, and so that they can better guide students and learners is really important. And now more than ever, I think we all need to view ourselves as lifelong learners. Um, it's not necessarily even just about faculty development or superintendent development. It's just about constant learning and we're all in it together. I appreciate that greatly. I want to, Dan, I'm going to close with you on this. I know that you and Diane, you recently had an event with 250 participants, I believe, running five sessions at a time. I, I, you know, I just can't believe we're sort of in this position where people try to avoid in the education space being the sage on the stage, and yet now we're literally on a stage and a digital platform where I think we do have to think about the way in which we present and how do we think about what might be engaging when you can't use sort of the physical body in a physical space to be able to engage and bring out the energy of the room and these sorts of things. What advice do you have based on that experience that you and Diane had with 250 participants when you think about how to present information? Because I don't believe that it is the exact same as if we were all in a classroom right now. There are different ways. The power of audio that we're now going to be focusing on is going to be immense. Um, what advice do you have for folks when you think back to that event? Um, so some specific advice that I would say is, one, because this is such a new medium, I have to sync with my presenters to get them to prepared to just be speaking to the ether because so many people are not used to being on the other side of this. They go to a webinar, they sit silently, they don't say anything. 
So what I did was I synced with all my presenters to say, you have to have some discourse. You have to have some back and forth. How this looks could be in many different ways. You could use the tools within the, the, the video conferencing system, set up breakout groups, set up um, having polls, those types of things. You could also be using you know, something like a Flipgrid where you're doing a, a video back and forth in a video conversation, set up back channels through Twitter and have a hashtag through for your conference so that yes, you see what's happening up front, but you also see what's happening in the background and you can capture that and, and keep that going through Twitter. And that's a real time conversation. That's also collaboration. So even if you're presenting to the ether, you can set up systems to ensure that people are having that background conversation that in my opinion, like when I go to in-person conferences, I find just as valuable as what's being presented in front of me. I'll, I'll pull just as much from that back, uh, that back channel of Twitter than I will everywhere else. But you've got to set it up beforehand and think about how that's going to look and how it's going to work and syncing with your presenters to make sure that they're putting that in place and they're referring to it. If not, then you just, you're just have people sitting there staring at you with blank screens. And that's no different than being in a classroom where they're just talking to you. And that's not what, you know, as I say with um, teaching teachers when they're moving into this digital environment, if I'm just digitizing a worksheet and kids are filling that out, then I'm not actually pushing the envelope as to how we can best use the technology to meet our students at their point of need. So let's use all the tools at our disposal and let's put a new paradigm and a new ecosystem together to be able to make them uh, work together in, in, in that type of space. And that's how I look at it. Like this is an, an educational ecosystem. It's not just one of us across the board. It is everything working together to make us uh, help make the humans of the future. That's how I look at it. And, and the humans of the future need this tip also from Sam. Sam, I want you to, to dive into this before we close. I know you had one tip that you wanted to share with the audience. Yes. So to prepare people, as Dan so eloquently put it, to be able to um, educate online, hold conferences and events online, uh, support is needed. So um, something um, that's been effective for me in the past is actually creating online facilitation toolkits. It sounds really intense, but really all it is is a slide deck and a couple other materials to help people get acquainted to an online environment, um, same page facilitators around what the outcomes or desired goals of the event are, uh, around technical things that might come up, come up, around things like breakout rooms, but then also just best practices around reflective and active listening in an online environment. Uh, and so be thinking about what materials you can provide folks from your school, from your district, to sort of same page them, and think about recording your training sessions for people who can't make it and and, and linking to those or putting them, those up on a YouTube channel somewhere. Well, that's great advice. And, and I hope that uh, people have enjoyed the conversation. I hope that this is the first of many. Uh, I think that the, the checking in, the connection is going to be important, just as the, the learning experience as well uh, for adults. We want to thank Sam Becker, Dan Foreman, and Diane Dirsch. You've been listening to Breaking Through Mindset, Remote Collaborating and Planning, a how-to. This special COSIN podcast episode has been delivered in partnership with AASA and Digital Promise and produced by Mind Rocket Media Group. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thank you for listening to this episode of the COSIN podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also listen to each new episode on edcircuit.com or COSIN.org. Follow at COSIN on Twitter for further updates. 